0: Canucks. The Canucks slay the Kraken in Seattle. Now they finally re- return home to play in front of fans again. But not without some major questions up and down the lineup. It's the Canucks hour here on Sportsnet 650 with myself, Jamie Dodd, and as always joining me, He is the senior writer for The Athletic covering the Vancouver Canucks. It is Thomas Drance. And Drance, you are live at Rogers Arena as the Canucks are either just getting underway or just about to get underway for their first practice back in Vancouver for a while. How you doing, buddy?
1: I'm doing well. I'm up in the press box, which is not where I'm used to watching practice from. So I've got the binoculars going and the (laughs) microphone lifted to my mouth. This is going to be interesting. Let's do it. Guerrilla Radio, Jamie.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, as always, the Canucks Hour is brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. You can always get in on the conversation here. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. We want to hear from you. And I should also mention that if you're, for whatever reason, you're not able to listen live to the. Canucks Hour. You can find us on Spotify, Google, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. You can subscribe and catch the podcast very, very shortly after the show is done at noon. All right, Dranser, let's get into it. There is a lot of to break down today, and I know it's from Saturday night, so it's a couple days old now. The Canucks are out there practicing. We'll get you all of the latest information from practice as it happens, but we we do have to start with that game in Seattle on Saturday, because there was a lot going on there, and I I just want to start with, I mean, you were in the building, you were there live watching it, and I expected Mm -hmm. the... You know, the celebrations and the pomp and circumstance at the beginning to be pretty cool. But I wasn't necessarily sure the rivalry aspect of it would live up to the hype. But I got to say, just watching it on TV, it did. Like that, that clearly was not just another regular season game to me. You know what I mean? It wasn't, I wouldn't necessarily say it was a playoff atmosphere, but it was definitely a notch above the atmosphere and intensity of a normal regular season game. I was really impressed. And I'm curious to hear what your point of view on that was from the building in Seattle. Yeah, I thought the atmosphere was
1: amazing. I mean, to some extent, they were still setting things up. Like, it wasn't the fully-fledged, you know, high-stakes, like high-octane pregame ceremony, for example, that I sort of expected based on the fact that the club's part-owned by Jerry Bruckheimer. Right. The maestro of (laughs) blockbuster explosions and that they hired Vegas's game press team away from Vegas. Right. Like to some extent, I I sort of had thought that maybe we'd see a bigger show out the gate, but they got into the building too late. Right. Like I don't think they were ready to necessarily run a test while making a first impression. And you know what, Jamie? It did not matter at all because the best special effect, the best bell and whistle that you could possibly have had was that crowd. That crowd was incredible. Like, incredible. They felt like a conquering army on the concourse, gear as far as the eye can see. And during the game, I mean, the atmosphere was as loud and as raucous as anything that I've experienced, you know, in a regular season atmosphere ever, ever. It was tremendous, like just an awesome showing, a powerful showing from one of the great underrated sports towns on this continent.
0: Yeah, it was really cool to see that crowd and and to hear the intensity come through even over the TV and I'm sure as you just laid out it was, you know, by a factor of 5 or 10 or whatever when you're actually in person there. And you know, there's been so much as we've been anticipating Seattle coming into the league, right? There's been so much excitement about the potential for a, a rivalry, a new legit rivalry based on proximity and all of that between Vancouver and the Kraken. And you know, I've definitely been on the side of things of Okay, let's not expect it to be this much of a rivalry right out of the gates, right? Because these things take time. There has to be some sort of shared on-ice history before you can really get that bad blood and, you know, maybe it'll be there for the first game, but let, let's just have a little patience. But again, I got to say, like, you know, I'm not no one's going to mistake it for, you know, the Red Wings Avalanche in the 90s or anything like that, but that was it it felt more intense on the ice. You know, forget about the fans. It felt more intense on the ice than I was certainly expecting in Game 1. And I get it, you know, it's their first home game, so the Kraken players are going to be extra juiced up, and that's going to get the Canucks extra fired up and all of that. But I was impressed. You know, I, I was not expecting to feel that much like a real rivalry right out of the gate like it did the fans deserve a ton of credit. Like what was the
1: moment? What was the moment where there felt like there was bad blood? It was actually between Garland and the fan. Yep. Right. Like that was the rivalry (laughs) moment and, and Garland, you know, didn't play it up. He didn't go full Vegas, uh, post game, but you know, I clearly that mattered to him. Like clearly that meant something. And you know what, again, the rivalry, like people say often, right. That a rivalry has to happen because the teams hate each other and it's born in the playoffs. And you know what, you know what it, it is, that's true, but there's a many ways to get there. Like, there's many ways to do that math, uh, to make that happen. And I feel like the Seattle fans, by booing the Canucks, right? By the way that they were so into it, were so invested in their home side. And, and as, as a consequence of that, you know, treating the Canucks like a pantomime villain, right? Like, boo, whenever they entered stage left. Um, You know, I think that turned up the temperature for the Canucks. I think it turned up the temperature for Connor Garland. And I think it got a rivalry that, you know, didn't necessarily have a lick of history to it, aside from a couple preseason games. You know, I I think it got it off on the right foot. Like it got it off on a, a foot that, you know, clearly, clearly there was some sentiment. And that's what you love to see, especially this early in the regular season.
0: Yeah, it's a good point about the fans, too, because obviously, you know, the best rivalries there's going to be legit hate and legit emotion between the players on the ice. But I do think to a certain extent, the players are going to follow the fans' lead, right? And as you said, the, the Seattle fans in the building, you know, they did their part. And, and even just... You know, watching Canucks fans on social media and texting into our post-game show and calling into our post-game show, like, there was real glee at spoiling Seattle's party in their home opener, right? You could tell that really really meant something to Canucks fans and that's the kind of thing that you know when the Kraken eventually make their trip up north here to play in Vancouver that's going to carry over and I think you are going to see a different and louder fan base at Rogers Arena than you would for you know a game against Nashville or a game against Columbus or something like that so I think the fact that the fans seem pretty locked in on it right away it's definitely raised my expectations for what this rivalry can be right out of the gate and You know, we we already are getting texts coming in, kind of chirping Seattle a little bit. Can we put Seattle on blast for having $17 $17 American beers on the menu? It's like, yeah, that's an awful lot to pay at that fancy arena for a nice (laughs) Seattle craft beer. Uh, You can get your comments in 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Marcus and Gibson's text in, that game in Seattle was very physical. That's how animosity starts. And that's a good point, right? Because you have the first edition of a, a pretty intense physical game and we know how it goes in the nhl those things tend to carry over players remember right if if connor garland gets under your skin in one game he's still going to be under your skin probably even next time you guys meet and that's the kind of thing that can really help rivalries grow in the early going like this well don't forget too like the border's closed this is the one
1: time hopefully right that these two teams will play and the border is closed but going forward you know, I don't think it's a stretch to suggest that Seattle might be Vancouver's Buffalo in terms of the arena that Canucks fans take over. And if you've ever done the Blue Jays takeover down at uh, you know, what was formerly called Safeco, I think it's T-Mobile now, right? Yep. Seattle fans hate that. They hate that. And that's going to add some heft to the rivalry too, much like, you know, in reverse, right? I'd imagine we'll see we'll see Kraken fans here when they play in Vancouver. Like that atmosphere is going to be fantastic it's going to be really cool yeah the visiting and you know it, yeah
0: yeah the, that, that's a good point because even just you know if you're a whitecaps fan right and and again back in the days when mm-hmm. they were able to have have fans in the stands and the border was open right you'd get a massive contingent coming up from seattle when the sounders come to play right and that that proximity and that interaction yeah that definitely gets things going uh, from a fan perspective, Jeff from Mission text in, watching the game, I felt like Seattle had an inferiority complex. Like they needed to stand up and say, hey, we're an NHL franchise too. I mean, yeah, like, they, they, they did have to do that. They're a new NHL franchise. He also says, and I feel like the rivalry for our side, at least for me, I have a bunch of friends and stuff who went from lifetime Canucks fans who said, screw this team. I'm a Kraken fan now. On day one. And that's another fascinating wrinkle, right? Because I'm sure you've seen that on social media, or I'm sure people have texted you that or tweeted at you, right? Like, hey, I'm so fed yeah. up. I'm so fed up with the Canucks. Yeah. I'm a Kraken fan now. And it's been a tough go. It's been a tough <laughs> go out of the gate for those fans so I mean. Far. I mean, other
1: than SA2, though, like, I don't really believe that those people exist. <laughs> you know, I'm going to be honest with you. Like, unless unless you're a, unless you're a Canucks fan in Washington State, right? Because yeah. like, yeah. there are a lot of people in Washington State who've traditionally supported the Canucks. And those fans, I bet, did switch allegiance, right? I mean, yes. and fair enough. I don't think those are the types of people we're, we're necessarily targeting. Other than that, the idea that there's this mass of Canucks fans who aren't Social Assassin 2... Who legitimately adopted the Kraken? <laughs> that sounds to me like one of those things where it's people on Twitter inventing a guy in their head to be mad at. <laughs> like there... those people aren't real. Come on, there's come on, there's Can certainly people is about suffering, man. <laughs> I mean, there's no certain... Canucks, no true Canucks fan would take the easy way out like that. No <laughs> way,
0: no chance. Wow, no the, how. The fan gatekeeping from Thomas Drance already. I love it. <laughs> D- defining who is and who isn't a true Canucks fan. Uh, <laughs> no, look, well, I'm I'll, just saying. I'll, I'll put it this way. I'll put it this. You way. You know it's true. Oh yeah there there were a lot of people who s- <laughs> there were a lot of people who said they were going to do it. I'm not sure how many actually did it. Let's put it that way. I, I think I agree with you there. Uh, it's the Canucks hour here on Sportsnet 650. Myself and Thomas trance with you for the remainder of the hour. Get your text in 650-650 if you have thoughts about what you saw from the team, from the rivalry, from whatever on Saturday night in Seattle. And we got to talk about the game itself. We've been talking about the atmosphere, the rivalry, all that. But we should get into what actually went down on the ice. The Canucks, you know, I will say improbably come away with a 4-2 win. I think when they went down (laughs) Uh, in that game in the third period, there were not a lot of people that would have picked them to rally, given how they'd been playing for, oh, the last period and a half of game time at that point. But they're managed to rally. They come back with a big 4-2 win. And, You know, I thought it was – it was an interesting game because I actually thought the first period was one of their better periods of the season, to be honest. I thought they – you know, they didn't necessarily create a ton of legit grade A scoring chances, but they did a pretty decent job of controlling play overall, and then they just disappeared after that. Like, Seattle got that goal with just a few seconds left in the first period, and it seemed like they just took over the game for a long, long stretch after that.
1: Yeah, you know, I was thinking about it post-game, and other than – Like there was that 16 minutes where the Canucks went without a shot punctuated at the end of it by, you know, really it was punctuated at the start by the Lamaco penalty late in the first, which was not a good penalty for a fourth line center to take. Although he made up for it with the key drawn penalty in the third and then the Bo Horvat goal, which was their first shot on 16 minutes. And of course (laughs) they score because it was one of those nights for the Canucks, as it seems to so often be against expansion franchises, right? Like Vegas and Seattle. Clearly, the Canucks know how to beat those teams. And it's, you know, play (laughs) rope-a-dope. Play rope-a-dope for the whole game and strike (laughs) against the grain. But the, you know, as I sort of thought about it, like, I liked their first period. And at the 13-minute mark of the third, I thought they began to chase the game. Like, leading up to the Bohorvat power play for a couple of shifts prior to it, I thought they began to assert themselves and, and look better, look more like the team that we saw... In Detroit right like look more like the team that's been able to hold their own in some of their games but not all of them the other parts of those their game though did legitimately look like they looked in Buffalo right a little bit just in terms of them getting stuck in their own end and that's become a bit of a theme for me so far this season right like when the Canucks stop connecting play when they stop being able to move the puck out of their own end like it it can get really grimy for them And, and when you look at the goal that Seattle scored to take the lead I mean, that was a textbook, right? A turnover at the red line, comes back quickly, and they score. And actually, if you look at the Garland goal, it's the same thing. Hughes flips it out, and Seattle tried to come in quickly. It's just that Garland makes an incredible play along the wall after Pullman and Demko deflect the pass that, uh, that results in him going the other way and fooling Philip Grubauer. So, you know, I look at that. At this point in the season, right, I'm trying not to react, or I tend to in my analytical approach, try not to overreact to a win or a loss, but look at sort of the bigger picture. And it's like we've seen now on a couple of occasions what this Canucks team can look like when they're struggling. And the way that it looks is stuck, like stuck in their own end of the rink. And I don't think that's a huge surprise. Like what's a concern about it for me is that that kind of matches what I would have been concerned about going into this season, right, yeah. regarding the... Achilles' heel that is their blue line.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point, and I, I will say, I, I you know, I wrote down when I was taking my notes watching the game. At one point, I wrote down either late in the second period or in the third period. You know, they look like a team that's playing the sixth game of a six game road trip and is you know one night away from getting to sleep in their own beds, and they're just they have dead legs, right? Like that's how it looked, and I and I wondered mm. if maybe the emotion and the energy from the start of the game kind of carried them through that first period, but it, it did feel like they. They just had trouble finding their legs to a certain degree later in the game. But you make a good point with the comparison to the Buffalo game, right? Because it's not like that's the only time we've seen a stretch of play from the Canucks so f- like that so far this year, right? Like, as you say, we've seen them get caught running around in their own zone, get caught having trouble making those, you know, effective transitions up the ice that end up coming back to haunt them. So, you know, I did think probably... Tired legs at the end of a long road trip played a part of it. But, you know, as you say, there's that, that's been a source of concern for this team already this year. And it would have been something, you know, a lot of people picked out as a potential concern even going into the year. So you mentioned him briefly there and the goal he scored that ended up being the winning goal. And we got to talk about Carl, Connor Garland. And get your text in, 650-650. Mm-hmm. This one comes in. Can we just give Garland the nickname that describes him accurately? Wolverine. He's small, but pound for pound, he is the toughest. He has some of that attitude. He's got the beard as well, for sure. I like it. It's an unsigned He's texture. not Canadian, though. No, he's, he's not. not Canadian. That's great. That's a great you need point. need to be Canadian to be Wolverine. Like, come on. We can't give the
1: Wolverine nickname. The one, the one great Canadian superhero who's not just like a stylized, super muscular Mountie, and we're going to give it to an American-born player? Not a, no, no, no.
0: I don't mean to gatekeep again, Jamie, but no. uh, Shots shots fired at, of course, the great Canadian superhero team Alpha Flight, which
1: which I I challenge
0: anyone to, to name another member of. But anyways, before we digress, that's a fair point. You know, he's not from Alberta like Wolverine, so maybe we need to go back to the drawing board. But I like the sentiment there because it has been... Look, we we talked about this a little bit last week, but all throughout the summer, everyone you talked to around the league, from Arizona wherever, was saying, "Oh man, you guys in Vancouver are going to love Connor Garland." And despite all that hype, it's it's been even better than anyone anticipated, right? And man, the, per, the performance <laughs> the performance in Seattle to score that goal, you know, the way he scored a goal with the energy and the trickery and all of that, and then staring down the fan after it, it really just kind of summed up. The entire, entire Connor Garland experience so far. I know you had a great piece mm. that I published yesterday, uh, I believe, in The Athletic about Garland doing a little profile on his competitiveness. And it, it's just he has ticked every possible box that the organization or the fans could have expected him to tick so far.
1: Well, and he hasn't just ticked off every box. He's ticked off every opponent. And don't <laughs> underrate that as a factor that Canucks fans find irresistible, right? I mean, oh, yeah. Canucks fans love the guy that everyone hates. He, uh, By the way, I'm just watching two-on-one drills, and just as we're talking, he just tried, like, an incredible fake wrist shot, no-look pass um, on a two-on-one drill. Like, I've never even seen that move. And that's sort of another thing about Garland, right? It's not just that he, uh, you know, annoyed Travis Konechny. It's not just that he, you know slammed <laughs> on the brakes and, and, you know, ended up infuriating Philip Zidina, not to mention the entire Red Wings team. Like I, I'm pretty sure there's still tear stains all over the winged wheel Jersey, uh, home Jersey that they're going to have to get out from what Garland did. Um, it's not just that he takes everyone off Seattle fans as well. It's also that he's really, really good. Like he's incredible. And, yeah. and when you put those two things together, right, when you, Get that Burroughs, Kessler, Bertuzzi-type ethic. Everyone hates this guy except Canucks fans. Like, that's catnip. That's catnip in this market. And to hit that high, to hit that high note, to be earning those comparisons six games into his Canucks tenure, yeah. I'd say that's gone down, that acquisition's gone down just about as well as could be expected at at the outset.
0: Yeah, and I was trying to think of comparisons from the team's history, right? You know, obviously the Burroughs one is going to come up a lot. You know, I've seen people reference you know, Matt Cook, Yarko Rutu, and, and you mentioned Kessler and Bertuzzi. And I think that's kind of more along the right lines, because let's not forget, it's not as if he's just running around out there, annoying people, right? Like, and, and obviously, Alex oh. Burrows was a key part of this team. He scored a lot of goals, but, you know, Alex Burrows was never going to challenge for the team lead in scoring, right? Like, Connor Garland's tied for the lead in scoring on this team so far. He He's all of those agitating things while also being a high-end offensive producer, and that's why kind of the name, like, Ryan Kessler sprung to mind for me, right? And I know they're very different styles of players. Obviously, Kessler playing down the middle and doing the great defensive work, but, you know, he had that 40-goal season when the team was at its peak. Bertuzzi's another interesting one. Again, he has the element of physicality that Garland doesn't necessarily have, but it's really that unique combination of I'm going to go out there and get under the skin of every fan base and every team we play. Oh, and by the way, I'm also going to carry the team offensively for stretches, right? I'm going to make a game-breaking goal happen in the third period against our rival to win the game. Like, that combination is so, so rare across the NHL.
1: It's true. I I, You know, I can't remember who – made this comparison but the comparison i loved it was uh halfway between cliff ronning and alex Burrows, and for me that's dead on right and and look connor garland's unique style of play is part of the story right because horvat and pearson and both horvat and garland discuss this are still figuring out how to play with garland and it makes sense that it would be really difficult right like we talked about this late last week only to have two of the three members of the line sort of echoed the sentiment uh, over the course of the day on Saturday. But Garland's, you know, weird way, uh, unique way is how he described it, of creating space by circling along, basically individually, along the wall. You know, it takes some guys, especially guys who've played with a lot of straight-line players, some time to figure out how to complement that. Where does he want the puck? Where do we want to be? And when you look overall at that line's performance this season, Like, it's not – they haven't been driving play. They just haven't been driving play the way we'd expect a line anchored by Bo Horvat and with a top-line caliber scorer who typically drives play himself in Garland. Like, on that line, we'd expect them to be driving play, you know, like gangbusters, and that hasn't happened yet. But I think three of their four best games, or three of their best games, have been in the last four. Like, take Buffalo out, and I think Detroit, Seattle, Chicago – that's meaningful progress from that line. We'll, we'll see if that carries over on Tuesday. It's going to have to because this wild team is super imposing five on five. Like far better at, at five on five than any opponent the Canucks have played yet. And, you know, they're, they're going to need that line to generate the type of consistent, like heavy shift um, that we haven't seen enough of them from. But... But all of that said, Garland's still producing, and he's not just producing, Jamie. He's producing without a spot on PP1, right? Yep. Yep. Which means these are hard points. Like, these are not a secondary assist picked up because, you know, you move the puck around the outside of a, of a power play, right? Like, this, these are hard points, and I think that makes what he's done all the more valuable.
0: Yeah, it's it's a great point that he's not getting that prime power play time, right? That always does elevate a player's production in my mind, right? Not that like look, power play goals count just the same, but when you see the guy who's able to rack up points without getting those grade A opportunities on the first man on the first unit with the man advantage, you're right that that says something about the the talent and the consistency that they're putting out there. And you know, we we're asking, we we're kind of kicking around different comparisons for uh, Connor Garland and a, a few fascinating texts have come into the 650 650 text message inbox and I don't this is both it's extremely high praise in Vancouver and extremely fascinating in Vancouver because Reg texts in I think the Canucks have found their Brad Marchand in Connor Garland Logan Logan texts in something similar and Matt in North Van says Garland is Vancouver's Brad Marchand and I mean that that's kind as much as he's the most loathed villain in this market that's also kind of the highest compliment a Canucks fan can play to somebody on the own team right that that Connor Garland has the ability to do what Brad Marchand has done for the Bruins but instead of inflicting it on the Canucks he can do it he can do it on the behalf of the Canucks right
1: well that's I mean the only issue with that comparison, well, there's two. One is Garland uses one of the shortest sticks in the league, right? <laughs> and Marshand uses one of the longest sticks in the league, right? For a guy under six feet tall, right? Like go, go watch marshawn play like he's legitimately playing with like a scythe like it's a massive (laughs) massive blade and it and it allows him to do some of the weird stuff that he does are not weird stuff but some of the goals that he scores you know when he reaches around goalies that's like a signature marshawn deke right that's enabled by his long stick you'll never see you'll never see garland finish like that just because his stick is so short like it's tiny it's you know incredibly short even for a player of his stature uh so that's one thing the second is you know, and I, and I hate to say this, but, like, Marchand was on my heart trophy ballot last season. Yeah. Like, Marchand, Marchand might be the best two-way winger in the sport now. You know, I didn't see that happening. I, I, five years ago, if you told me that that would happen or that I'd ever be saying that, I wouldn't have believed you. But what he's done in terms of changing his defensive, like, that, that, might, that, might, that might be, like, an aspirational goal. You know what I mean? I don't think that's a comp we should levy just yet.
0: And and other people will point out, you know, that Marchand's history of you know skating right up to and then crossing in some ways, in by a significant leap, crossing the edge of what's you know acceptable on the ice. Connor Garland doesn't have that history, but you're right about the gap in caliber, (laughs) right? Crossing,
1: crossing that edge, yeah. Yeah, No respect for the edge. Yes, (laughs) no, not, not, not from Brad Marchand. Guys like in Looney Tunes, you go over the <laughs> cliff and then take a few seconds to notice you have. That's 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 yeah. more his uh, relationship with the edge.
0: But just a point to put in perspective, as you say, the the you know not insignificant gap in quality still between the two. As as great as Connor Garland has been, you know Brad Marchand is a lock a lock for Team Canada this year if he's healthy, right? And you consider all of the depth that Team Canada has at forward to be able to send to the Olympics. Marshawn's a lock. You know, Connor Garland, I think, would have to do something pretty spectacular in the run-up to the Olympics to get himself on that USA team, right? So there is still a gap in wow, quality. He's off
1: to a start, though. He, well, he's he keeps this up. up. I don't think he's been – yeah, I don't think he was on Team USA's radar this summer, but uh, if he keeps this up, you, you can – you like, you rest assured. Rest assured.
0: If he's above a point a game in January, it's going to be hard to keep him off, right? Like that—that's that's that's kind of the reality of it. But you're right; he probably wasn't on their radar going into the season. It's the Canucks hour here on Sportsnet 650, as you can hear in the background. uh, Dranser is at practice. We'll get you all the news and notes from Canucks practice as they return home, getting set to face the Minnesota Wild tomorrow in their home opener, and of course, look, we talked about a lot of the good with Connor Garland and the win against Seattle, but we know you want to talk about Elias Pettersson as well, so we'll get into Elias Pettersson, his form so far this season. Should you be worried? What's it going to take to change it? All of that and more. Keep your text coming in, 650-650. All of that coming up next. It's Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650 with myself, Jamie Dodd, and Thomas Drantz, senior writer. For the Athletic covering the Vancouver Canucks. Canucks Hour is brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Continue to get your texts in. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Dunbar Lumber, the smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. And as you can hear from the pucks and the sticks on the ice in the background, dr- background Drancer is live at Canucks practice at Rogers Arena. Drancer, is there anything massively breaking, important news from practice that you can uh, pass on to us?
1: <laughs> I don't know if there's anything massively breaking, but there's definitely so, definitely a few items of interest here. Uh, you know, number one would be that Justin Dowling is absent from today's practice, and that means that facility pod calls in took line rushes on the left wing of a, of a possible fourth line with Chason and Yuho Lamico. Uh, we'll get a Dowling update from Travis Green once the practice concludes. Uh, Green is already off the ice, so I'd imagine he'll discuss the matter shortly. Uh, you know what? Sorry, I'm incorrect. He's working with the second power play unit. So, nonetheless, I, I, after practice, I would expect Travis Green to discuss Justin Dowling's status, and then we'll know more, but the idea that Vasily Podkolzin could get in for the home opener, I mean, that feels important. Like, it feels like the Canucks need to find a way to get him into the lineup. You know, I'm not one who thinks that he needs to play high up the lineup. I don't think he's at the point where that would be a helpful spot in terms of helping the club win. But, you know, they they can't have him gathering mothballs on the press box, uh, despite the fact, you know, that they did win the past two games while he was scratched. As for... The rest of the lineup, no changes on defense. I'd sort of wondered, because I didn't think that Burroughs and Rathbone were as good in Seattle as they had been previously. Yep. I'd sort of wondered if Luke Shen might get into the lineup, um, at least based on practice lines. And, of course, we'll know more after the team takes Morning Skate in the event they take Morning Skate tomorrow. Um, but, you know, I, I'd sort of wondered if Luke Shen might get in. Uh, doesn't look like that'll be the case. The veteran defender obviously... St- ...signed in Vancouver in part because he wanted to play, right? I mean, he wanted to play more regularly. He's only played one game so far, so uh, uh, that's something that I'm going to continue to monitor. Or, or it's just an item of interest for me um, as we go forward here. And then on the power play, despite them scoring a goal after Besser joined the first unit, despite the fact that with Chason on that first unit with, you know, Besser, or sorry, with Horvat. Miller Pedersen, and Hughes they didn't generate a single shot on goal in three minutes and 28 seconds of ice time until Besser joined the top unit uh, looks like Chase on back at the net front with PP1 while Besser joins Hoaglander Oliver Ekman Larson Garland and Pearson on PP2 so those are the, those are sort of that's the basic rundown of, of things that I found interesting Pod Colson maybe in the lineup Jason, uh, Justin Dowling we'll see maybe maybe there's an injury there. And lastly, it looks like the chase-on on on PP1 experiment will continue.
0: Yes, well, there's uh, maybe a a, a good news, bad news uh, case there for a lot of Canucks fans because, you know, when Pod Colson was scratched certainly the first time and then against Seattle, there's a loud contingent of fans saying, what's going on here, he needs to get game time. And look, I don't think him sitting in the press box for a couple of games early in his career is the end of the world. I do find it interesting that he's skating on the fourth line now today at practice because, you know, as you said, they've won both games where he's been a scratch. And so often NHL coaches are reluctant to change a winning lineup. It'll be interesting to hear is this a result of Justin something going on with Justin Dowling and he's absent for those reasons, or is it Travis Green actively looking uh, for a reason to get Pod Colson back in the lineup? And, you know, I, I think that the Pod Colson deserves to play, and and I believe you tweeted out on Saturday, you know, there was a moment where the Canucks throughout the course of that game kind of shuffled their lines, and Pud Colson's absence was pretty glaring at that point because he was another skilled player that you could theoretically move up the lineup, but you didn't have that option, right? So I think it makes sense to have Pud Colson in the lineup, probably in that kind of fourth-line role where you have the ability to get him other opportunities throughout the course of the game as well. For sure, and, you know, that's where... That's where Pod Colson, I
1: think, especially once you start shuffling the lines and you've got Highmore with Peterson and Hoaglander and you're chasing the game, right? And it's like, you know, Highmore's played really well this season, right? Like, I think he's been a, a very, very effective bottom six winger for this team. But when you're chasing the game, would you rather have Pod Colson's shot, right, on the on the end of a Peterson pass or a, or a Nils Hoaglander yep. cycle shift or, or Highmore's? I mean, that's sort of where you get into you know, a, a situation where certainly you'd rather have Pod Colson. But for me, it's not even about that. Like, that that's not what matters here. What matters is, you know, we've now seen Pod Colson through training camp, through preseason. I don't think he had, you know, I don't think he showed enough necessarily to be an everyday top-nine player. That's my view. That was my view going into the season. It remains my view now that we've seen him play in four NHL regular season games. But, but... I also think we've seen enough in terms of what he can do physically in one-on-one situations, in terms of that shot, in terms of the work rate and the defensive conscious uh, conscious and the effort level to get better. Right, like I think we've also seen enough to know that at some point, and some point, pretty soon, probably, this guy is going to be an impactful player in this league. For me the question now becomes not about, you know, what's best for the Canucks winning on Tuesday. Like surely game seven of the season isn't must win territory, right? (laughs) It's, it's what, what do you do to fast track pod Colson, right? So that he's one of your best nine or 10 forwards come February, right? Like for the second half of the season, when those young legs might matter a ton, what do you do to get him there? And, you know, he's going to need to play like he's going to need to play and learn and continue to adjust to this NHL. ice surface to this NHL game to NHL pace. And I don't know how you do that if you're not getting reps and getting minutes. And that's sort of the challenge is how do you balance that? How do you balance teaching at the NHL level with also wanting to
0: compete and make the playoffs at the NHL level? Yeah, it's a tricky test for any coach. And, you know, the, the scratches were interesting because on the one hand, you certainly saw the flashes of skill, and he scored the goal, and he, he he did make plays that made you realize, okay, he has a lot more upside than some of the other bottom six pieces that the team is putting out there. But if you look at the overall results and underlying metrics when he was out there on the ice, they were among the poorest on the team, right? Arguably the poorest of the forwards on the team. So there was, a, there was a, certainly a case to be made for taking him out of the lineup at the time. But as you said, look, this is not exactly a must-win game now on Tuesday. And they, they ensured that it's it doesn't even feel like that by winning the last two games of this road trip, right, and turning things around after the defeat in Buffalo. So I, I do think that almost gives, you know, as much as they're coming off two wins in a row and coaches don't like to change the lineup in that situation, it almost gives Travis Green a little bit of flexi- flexibility, right, because he's probably not feeling the heat in the same way he could have been had the had the end of that road trip gone really south, and maybe that allows him, to get Pod Colson back in the lineup tomorrow night. But, of course, we'll have to wait and see how they line up in morning skate tomorrow and then what the lineup ultimately is. Okay, we have talked a lot about a lot of of things going on with this team and the the forward lines at practice and what Connor Garland did on Saturday night in Seattle. We have not talked about Elias Pettersson. And just as I start to launch into this, this text comes in, Drancer. It says, time for Pettersson to sit. Put Colson in in his place. And that's an extreme reaction. What? That's an extreme what? reaction. But oh, there is a goodness. lot of discontent and angst, I think, about what Elias Pettersson has done on the ice for the Vancouver Canucks so far. How worried should fans be about what they're seeing from Elias Pettersson right now? I mean, I don't think you should be very worried about
1: what you're seeing from Elias Petterson, Fundamentally, for this reason, right? Elias Pettersson is a great player. A great player. And we've seen that. Like, he's one of 17 guys to have more than 0.9 points per game over their first three seasons in the last 30 years in the NHL. And that list includes guys like Paul Correa, Peter Forsberg, like, some of the all-time greats. You know, honestly, the worst player, like, probably the worst player on this list. And, and you know, this is, like, Not criticism at all. Like, the worst player on this insanely good cohort that Pedersen is among, based on his first three seasons and his production in those years, is Paul Stasny, a guy who has 800 career points and has played 1,000 NHL games, right? Like, even at the very bottom end of this guy's projection, we know that he's a top of the lineup NHL player for a decade. Like, players don't come in and do what he did for three seasons and sustain it and perform in the playoffs and win the Calder and score like this and drive play like this, and then all of a sudden, not. Like, that's just, it doesn't happen. And so, you know, when I look at Peterson's performance to this point, when I talk to him about his slow start, like, he's not happy, right? And he he's a guy who sees his errors. Like, he knows where it's not quite working for him, where he's missing his mark. And I do think he's probably dealing with a a bit of low confidence. Like, I don't think his confidence is there in terms of his overall finishing game. And I think everything kind of trickles down from that. When I look overall, though, at what Pedersen's done, like this is a guy at 5-on-5 over the past three seasons who has converted on 17.1% of his shots taken at five at even strength like that's insane think about how good goaltenders are these days right 91 percent of shots stopped when they're stopping Pedersen shots it's 83 percent right like it's like he turns the clock back 20 years to the 1980s (laughs) um this year he hasn't scored on a single one of his five on five shots that's not gonna last that's not gonna last this guy's the best five on five finisher other than Leon Dreisaitl from the past three years he's going to beat goaltenders again uh, that's not going to last. I'm not worried about his finish. Uh, in terms of his on-ice percentages too, he's at about a third of where he usually would. Like, not If if nothing else changes in Pedersen's game, you're still going to see him begin to score more regularly and you're about to see his line score more regularly just because of the gravity of like fixed percentages and what he can do. Nothing else has to change. That will still come. The offense will still come. So I'm not worried about him from that perspective. What I am a little bit concerned about Jamie so far yeah two quick items one is his shot attempt rate has is way down like it's down 50% over last year it's down 60% versus where it was in 2019-20 that's at five on five but it's down in all situations and when when you consider what we know about the pain that he dealt with in his wrist going into this offseason how relieved he was to be shooting pucks this offseason and it not be painful Right? When when we factor in what we know about the injury that he dealt with last year, with the fact that, you know, he's not getting his shot, he's not using it as regularly this season, I I think that's something that certainly bears monitoring with some concern, right? The other thing is he's just not drawing penalties. And when you think about watching Elias Pettersson, like think about over the past few years, how often you've been watching on TV or in person at the arena, and you've seen him hauled down and not get a penalty. And you've been like, come on. Like what he, uh, of course, call that. You got to call that refs. And, And like that happened every period for him because he was always around the puck, carrying the puck, winning battles inside or a step ahead of defenders. And he still, even though he didn't always get the benefit of the doubt, he still drew penalties at some of the highest rate in the NHL. Hasn't drawn a single penalty five on five yet. It's only 85 minutes, not a huge sample, but that tends to be a number that I look at as like a proxy for how involved a guy is in the game, how, how, how much they're around the puck and dictating the flow of play. Uh, the fact that Pedersen hasn't at any point drawn a penalty, and I can't even remember thinking that he should have, uh, that to me is a huge departure from what we've seen in years past, and and that's one item that I that I am
0: genuinely concerned about. So, Janser, before I, I dig into the Pedersen stuff, I, I I have some bad news for you because at one point there you said in terms of his shooting percentage, he turns the clock back twenty years to the 1980s. and I, I regret to inform you that 20, 20, <laughs> 20 years ago, we're old, buddy. Twenty years ago was in fact I know two thousand 40, forty years, so we're going back forty Good years. Goodness. But uh, I think people. Sorry, have... it's always it's yeah. always
1: 2005 in my mind. Yeah. Like I just want to I just want to make that clear. My music taste hasn't adjusted. My film taste hasn't adjusted. I still dress like it's 2005. Like I'm I'm a 35 year old man. My my entire taste in everything, including where my my perspective of time was fixed when I was uh, when I was 20. And that's just how it is. So yeah. I'm sorry. No, I 45 I, years. Whatever. I'm right
0: there with you. Uh, I'm 35 as well. So the 80s will eternally be 20 years ago, the 70s, 30 years ago, etc. That will never change. But I, I just wanted to, as I said, regretfully, <laughs> regretfully inform you that we are, in fact, very, very old. But look, on the top of Elias Patterson, <laughs> for, me, for me, it's not a question of... If he gets going, it's just a question of when, right? And and that's I, I even within that framework, I can understand why somebody would be concerned, right? Because okay, it's been six games now, you know. Okay, ten games. You don't want it to stretch on too long to a point where you're you're eaten into a big chunk of the season, right? And this team needs Elias Patterson to get good results consistently. Like that's just a fact of of what, how this team is built, right? And and they're they're coming home. They've got a lot of home games. Uh, in the last part of October and then into November as well this is a golden opportunity for them to rack up some points but to do that they need Elias Pedersen his best so even if you have ultimate confidence that he will get back to his level the level that he's established I understand still having a little bit of concern about when exactly that might happen and you know as you laid out there Whenever a player struggles like this to start the year, there's a couple of kind of stock responses, right? Like, one is it's early, mm-hmm. and two is, well, he's getting unlucky, right? And both of those things are true. They're absolutely true in this case. But as you said, there's a lot more to it than just bad luck going here. And you you look at the results the lotto line are getting. When they're at their best, they completely control play. And, they, and it seems like they spend yep. every shift... In the other team's zone, creating scoring chances. We just have not seen that version of them whatsoever. Even when they have been in the other team's zone, I think they've really struggled to get to the center of the ice, to get to the slot, to get those legit high-danger scoring chances. They've really lagged by that metric. And so... Yeah, if he increases, if his shooting percentage regresses to the mean, then yeah, you're going to see more points. But with Pedersen, it's always been about both the point production and the ability to drive play. And and we haven't seen that ability yet either. So it's, there's certainly more to it than just, oh, you know, he's getting a bad, he has a bad shooting percentage right now.
1: Yeah, no, there definitely is. And, you know, I always, uh, <laughs> I always have this sort of formulation, Jamie, that there's guys who can set the table, right? Which, by which I mean guys that can drive play, guys that drive volume, guys that help you spend more time in the offensive end than the defensive end. But those aren't necessarily the guys who help you feast, right? Like those aren't necessarily the guys who help you eat the meal, who, who are offensively talented enough, right, to make the table setting really count. And then there's guys who feast and don't drive play, don't set the table. They just show up and they eat, and that's your Patrick Kane's and your Phil Kessels and- you know, there's lots of guys. You, you you win with those guys. There's a reason that both of the players that I listed have Stanley Cups. Like yep. you need guys who can eat if you're going to win a cup. You need offensive skill in this league to win. Um, the rare player, though, can do both, right? The rare player can do both. And in his first three years, Peterson did. Right now he's doing neither. And I think that's why you're seeing some concern. It's not
0: misplaced necessarily. I just don't share it. Yet. No, and the level, there's different levels of concern, right? You can be mildly concerned about a player. You don't have to immediately go to a 10 out of 10 on the panic scale. And, you know, frankly, that's we're getting a lot of texts in, I would say, to the 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text line that are kind of at a 10 out of 10, right? Like, angry postman texts in, so far, PD is a $7 million dud. I've caught myself yelling at him a few times on this road trip and Nathan on the island <laughs> Nathan on the island texts in what exactly does an at his best patterson do besides a one timer and one man efforts that go nowhere and and Nathan look i respect your opinion i respect the text and i thank you for listening and texting in but like I'm not really sure how to answer that question. What he does is score at an elite five-on-five rate and keep the puck hemmed in on the other team's zone constantly when he's at his best. Like, those are pretty much the two best things you can do as a hockey player. So I'm not really sure where we're all of a sudden pretending, oh, what does he even do? What's he even good at out there? He's really, really good at hockey and a slow six games to begin the season shouldn't make us forget that. (laughs) <laughs> what, what does he do out there? He leads the team in ice yeah. time.
1: His two-way metrics are still some of the best on the team. Like, his underlying profile is still probably, you know, it's not Niels Hoaglander good, but it's pretty close to the best on the team among forwards. Um, he hasn't even been outscored on the ice five on five while handling toughs on the road. Like, I mean, <laughs> come on. Come on.
0: Ever? Everyone
1: needs to take a deep breath. We're, this is a
0: special player. We're what, like 14 months away or 14 months past him having 18 points in 17 postseason slash playoff games for this team, right? Like, like <laughs> y- you know what I mean? Like, yeah. how, how quickly we forget what he's capable of, of at his best. And even in just the disastrous year last year, which his season ends short and it got off to such a brutal start, he's still at 21 points in 26 games. Like, it's not like he went out there and went over <laughs> on no, the I season, know. right? Like, he's, he was still finding ways to produce. So, look, I get it. I get it, and and Jordan and Langley text him, but he hasn't done it for quite some time, Jamie. He sucked last year. Again, the bubble playoffs were not that long ago. Like, are our memories that no. short that we've already flushed that down the memory hole and don't even remember it? it, it the, the idea that he had this one incredible half of a season in his rookie year and then he's been mediocre since then, it is just not backed up by the record whatsoever so look I get it that it's frustrating he signs this new contract and there's all this excitement coming into the year I understand that it's frustrating to see him not produce right off the bat but like let's keep this in perspective of what this player (laughs) is capable of Good for goodness sakes
1: Jamie do you ever have you ever seen like John Mulaney's stand-up are you a John Mulaney guy
0: I'm I'm not like a huge fan but I've seen it yeah
1: he has this bit about the new york post and the new york post has like a hierarchy of concern where like at the lowest level like the highest level of concern the most innocent and pure are like the babies and the children right and it's like you always sort of get and that's that's like i've always thought and then at the lowest end is like the scumbags right and like i've always thought that nhl players sort of go through this in terms of their own career perspective like when you're a prospect right when you're a babe when you're an innocent you can do no wrong like in fact no matter how you play you should be in the top six you gotta get opportunity right yeah and then the moment you get paid right the moment you get paid the moment you sign your third deal as Pedersen just did right all of a sudden the daggers come out the standards go up in to such an extreme extent that you become you know in in Mullaney's perspective anyway the scumbag right like the 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 worst of the worst just because you're now getting paid and you're no longer still 21 like 22. He's 22. He's one of the best centermen in this league. One of the most uniquely skilled centermen. He's coming off eight months, um, you know, away from competitive hockey. Missed training camp because they were negotiating that deal. Um, It's going to take a bit of time here. It might take another week or two. The Canucks don't really have the time to wait considering, you know, their overall structural game and talent level, true talent level. But they probably are going to be waiting for a bit. And nonetheless, with this player, he's a special player. It's only a matter of time. Every, like, it, it just because he just signed a third deal, which is still good value, right? Still good value, cap hit versus, you know, talent. Um, you know, just because of that doesn't mean that he doesn't deserve a little bit of patience as he
0: works through it. If he repeats his performance just in terms of, like, the rate statistics from his first three years on the three years of this deal... Yeah, it's still an incredible surplus value deal for the Canucks, right? Because that's how good he's been through his first three seasons. So I get it. I get it. But let's just pump the brakes Sorry, I called a it bit. his
1: third deal, by the way, and I want to errors and omissions myself. I meant three-year deal. Yeah.
0: I just misspoke. I'll get, Excuse me. I'll of course, and it was uh, the second contract. We'll, we'll end on this text because I think it really sums things up. It's from Tony on Hornby Street who says, My God, I feel like I'm listening to Leaf Nation talk about Mitch Marner. Chill out, Canucks fans. He <laughs> will be fine. The ultimate, the ultimate shade thrown at the rest of Canucks Nation by Tony on yeah. Hornby Street. I love it. All right, man. <laughs> Two Look. elite
1: players, both going to be totally fine. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like,
0: that's exactly. a really good
1: comparison. Way to go, Tony.
0: Nailed it. All right. That's going to do it for Canucks Hour today. Uh, Nazar and myself actually have Sportsnet today coming up for the next three hours. Drancer, hopefully we're going to both be at the rink tomorrow on game day, the home opener. I can't wait. I know fans are really excited. Until then, thanks as always, man. We'll be back tomorrow at 11. This has been the Canucks Hour on Sportsnet 650.